I'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, today in chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 today, and as you turn there, you will see uh, that we are now in Luke's Gospel at the very reason that we are here, uh, at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It occurred to me this week as I was preparing that I don't believe that I have preached directly on the resurrection at any time other than an Easter Sunday before. There are lots of resurrection texts in the New Testament. And I, I've preached on passages that touch on the resurrection or build on the truth of the resurrection or, or talk about the resurrection. And, uh, and I have preached through uh, 1 Corinthians 15, but to actually go to the text where we see the account of the resurrection, I don't think I've ever done it here at Redeemer, and it's one of these things that is so important, uh, it almost makes you wonder why we don't read it and study it more than we do once a year. But today, the resurrection, Luke chapter 24, reading in verses 1 to 12, and I'm going to back up the reading, as I mentioned uh, I would last week, I'm going to back it up to verse 54, as we see the women uh, preparing the day of preparation and the Sabbath beginning, the women uh, going and preparing spices and ointments to come back to the uh, tomb on the first day of the week. So that's where we're going to start today, reading in verse 54, and we're going to study on through verse 12 of chapter 24. Now before we read this passage, please join me as we pray to the Lord and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Well, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the resurrection is true. We thank you that here in your word you tell us not how it happened, but that it happened. And you give us your word so that we can come and trust you and find life by faith in Jesus' name. Oh, help us to do exactly that, O oh Lord. Help us to rejoice with joy inexpressible, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, as we wait for our blessed salvation to be revealed in him at the last day. Thank you for the resurrection. Help us to see it. Help us to believe it. Help us to follow and to love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now beginning to read in Luke chapter 23, verse 54. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment, but on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I imagine that many of you have uh, heard uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee in the Through the Bible radio program. Uh, Dr. McGee, for 20 years before his death, led that daily radio program, Through the Bible. Uh, and various times, people would re- uh, write in and, and give their questions, and he would address them. And at one point, a woman wrote in with this question. She said, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health, what do you think? Well, McGee replied, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for three days. Then see what happens. If you've been around the church long enough, you've been exposed uh, to at least a sampling of the various ways, the various arguments that stichetics use to to try and explain away the New Testament witness of the resurrection. There's the swoon theory, the one that Dr. McGee's listener encountered that says that Jesus never really died anyway. Uh, He was was still alive, though maybe comatose, and Uh, and he didn't actually die. So there's a swoon theory. There's the stolen body hypothesis. That says, uh, as you would imagine, uh, that somebody stole the body, uh, that it was there, and somebody took it. Maybe it was the religious leaders to keep uh, the tomb of Jesus from becoming some religious shrine among his followers. Maybe it was grave robbers who heard that there was a king and imagined there would be riches. Maybe it was the disciples themselves because they just wanted to perpetuate this myth of the resurrection, the stolen body hypothesis. And then there's the vision hypothesis that says that Jesus was there. He was still dead. He was still in the tomb. But you know, those women and those disciples were so delirious with grief that they just imagined that they saw the whole thing. These are the major categories, the ways that skeptics try to explain away the resurrection. And to these major categories are added other sub-explanations and other arguments. And there's no shortage, really, of skeptical attempts to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. And despite the fact that that many of these arguments claim to be new, something that nobody has ever considered before. Actually, skepticism about the resurrection has been around for a very long time. Skepticism about the resurrection has been around at least as long as the resurrection has been around. May I remind you that the first skeptics to the resurrection were the apostles themselves. Luke tells us that when the women returned with their report of the angelic message, it says these words seemed to them like an idle tale. You know those women and their talk. And they did not believe them. Actually, the word is they disbelieved them. They refused to believe them. So there's a long history of rejection when it comes to the resurrection. This isn't new. And typically, when the church encounters skepticism to the resurrection, one of the things that we try to do, one of the ways that we try to argue for the reality of Easter Sunday is to point to the open tomb. 
in a sense, we, we do that by gathering our arguments, by, uh, by gathering our sources, by girding our apologetic loins and presenting our case for Christ. There's a place for that, actually. After 2,000 years of dealing with the objections, actually the church has realized that we have pretty reliable sources, uh, and we have some pretty good evidence, and we have some logical reasons why a physical resurrection makes the most sense of the record that's come down to us from the Gospels. There is a place for arguments and for evidence in favor of Easter. But I hope that you notice here in Luke's Gospel how the first skeptics were convinced about the resurrection. There were these women who forgot to remember. There were these men who refused to believe, and I hope you see that they were convinced that the resurrection actually happened, not just because they could see the empty tomb, but because they believed the word of Christ. Four points to our study today. And the first has to do with what the women expected. What the women expected. Well, this first point is pretty straightforward because what they expected was pretty straightforward. When they went to the tomb on the first day of the week, they expected a dead body. They expected the same thing that you would expect if you go to a funeral for a friend. They expected the same thing that you would expect if you get that sad midnight call from the local authorities asking you to come down to the morgue and make a positive identification. They expected simply and nothing more than a dead body in a tomb. Remember the way they prepared. Remember why they returned. These women in this passage were the anchors of reality. And when you're dealing with the dead, somebody always has to be the anchor of reality. Some of you have dealt with it. You know how it goes. There is grief, there is heartache, there is turmoil, and yet somebody still has to make the arrangements. Somebody has to write the obituary. Even in the midst of your grief, somebody has to sign the paperwork and make the decisions. So these women came back to the tomb with spices, with embalming supplies. They didn't come back with tambourines. They expected to find nothing in that tomb other than cold flesh and the scent of death. This is important. It's important because from the earliest days of the church, these faithful disciples have been slandered. They've been called flighty. They've been called fearful. They've been called psychologically susceptible. Already in the second century, Origen was dealing uh, with arguments that these women were, well, just women, and women can't be trusted anyway, you know. Closer to our day, almost two centuries ago, a skeptic by the name of Paul-Henri Thierry wrote that these women, he said, were interested in saying that Jesus was risen again. And so to that interest, they joined also weak minds and ardent imaginations, and thus they were disposed to form for themselves phantoms and chimeras. In other words, he wrote in another place, he says their prepossessed imaginations made them see what did not exist. It's almost amazing the snide condescension in the skeptics. You imagine that if they could, they would take these women aside and sit them down like a confused child and pat them on the head and say, now, now, dear, dear, 
Isn't it sad that you just don't know how the world works? You don't realize that the dead should stay dead. But then you think about it and you wonder if any of these condescending skeptics and scholars have ever actually done what the women were preparing to do that Sunday morning. Well, don't forget, this was the age before death could be dealt with by the professionals. How else would the women know what to do with a dead body on Sunday morning than that they had already done it? They did it when their fathers died or when their sisters died or when their children died. If anything, earlier generations had a far more intimate grasp of the ravages of death on the people that they loved than we do now. It wasn't as separate as a, a phone call and a, and a car that comes to collect a body and a, and a business card to tell you when to show up for your meeting. No, these women were, were studied. They, they were practiced in the art and the science of washing and binding and embalming bodies for burial. These women are not fanatics. They're not simpletons hoping for something sensational. They were realists. They knew that Jesus was dead. Luke says that when Jesus was laid in the tomb on Friday, they not only saw where his body was laid, but they saw how his body was laid. We get the sense, perhaps, that they saw that it was a little bit rushed because Sunday was approaching and everybody had to go home for the Sabbath. And they, they saw that something was lacking and so they noted in their minds what they needed, how they should prepare, and when they could come back at their earliest convenience to finish the job to their own exacting standards because they had done this before. So what did the women expect on the first Easter Sunday? They expected for death to work the way that death always works. They expected to find nothing in the tomb but a dead body. That was their expectation, and in their expectation, they were utterly unprepared for what they encountered. This is our second point, what the women encountered. Now, their surprise is captured in verses 2 and 3 uh, in this play on what they found and what they did not find. Verses 2 and 3, Luke tells us that when they arrived, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body that they expected, the body of the Lord Jesus. They came with a plan. They came expecting to find a closed tomb and a dead body, and what they found was an open tomb and no body. And they didn't recognize it at first, but what they were encountering at the tomb was salvation. Salvation probably far greater than they ever would have dared imagine they could encounter. And so two angels appear. Luke calls them men here in the beginning of chapter 24, but their appearance tells us otherwise, and later in the chapter on the road to Emmaus, we learn that they were actually angels. And so two angels appear, and they announce to the women that they are in the wrong place, and they are looking for the wrong thing. It is the most glorious, hope-filled rebuke that has ever been uttered in the history of humanity. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. 
And actually, it was a title more than a description. If you have the New American Standard Version, it gets it right. It says, why do you seek the living one among the dead? It's who he was. He's the living one. He's the one who has life in himself. He's the one who gives life to those whom he chooses. So why do you come to a graveyard to search for one who is life itself? It's a rookie mistake. Now the significance of this announcement cannot possibly be overstated. Make sure that you don't miss, though, the subtlety of what the angels are announcing. They do not say his body is not here. They say he is not here. Now, if you'd ask these women on Saturday afternoon, where is Jesus? They would not have told you that he was in the tomb. They'd agree. That's where his body was. They, they saw it laid there. They watched the stones slam shut over the opening. They knew the body was in the tomb, but they believed that Jesus was not with his body. In fact, we get a hint for this. When Jesus told uh, the man next to him on the cross, that criminal, that thief who was there with him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise, not in the grave, not in the depths of Sheol, in paradise. And Jesus says when he dies, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is a nod to the biblical idea that our souls do not die as our bodies do. It reminds us that our eternal spiritual existence does not depend on the location of a dead physical body. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So if you ask these women on Saturday, where is Jesus? They would say, he's with the Father. He's with God. He's not in the tomb. That's just where we put his body. But you knew these were also Jewish women. Uh, these were devout women who probably knew their scriptures. These were women who trusted in the resurrection of the just on the last day, just the same way that Martha trusted in the resurrection of the just on the last day when she stood with Jesus at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. These women knew and believed that there was a day coming when the dead bodies of the saints would be raised to life, when the souls of the departed would be reunited, and there they would be in their bodies all over again. Job is the classic Old Testament example of this. Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. After my skin is destroyed, I will see him in my flesh with my eyes. Job is speaking of resurrection wonder. And pious Jews everywhere longed for the day that their loved ones, that, that their relatives would be raised to new life when they would live personally in the presence of God in the flesh. But when the angels appeared to the women, they said, Jesus is not here. Not because he's been separated from his body. Jesus is not here because he has raised his body. Jesus is not here because here, this is, this is a place of death, and the living one has conquered death in his resurrection body. 
John Murray puts it this way, Jesus came from the tomb of Joseph in that body that had been laid there. He was the same person in the same body in which he suffered. Paul goes on to tell us there are some necessary changes when that happens. When the perishable is raised imperishable, when, uh, when the dishonorable is raised in glory, when the weak is raised in power, there are necessary changes in Jesus' resurrected, glorified, spiritual body. Nevertheless, it is the same body that was resurrected. And that means that what these women encountered at the tomb was a salvation of God that they couldn't have possibly believed or imagined or thought that it would ever happen in their lifetimes. They were experiencing the beginning of the resurrection of the just. Because if Christ has been raised, the curse of sin has been vanquished. If Christ has been raised, the power of the law, the sting of death has been conquered. If Christ has been raised, he's been raised as the first fruit. And that means that our hope of resurrection is alive in him. It is a truth so stunningly wonderful that for centuries, half-hearted, gospel-denying churches have been trying to undersell it in order to make it more palatable to contemporary tastes. And so they say, Jesus is alive in your hearts. Jesus is alive in the love of his people. Jesus is alive in the smile of a child. Jesus is alive in a good deed done to a stranger. And I can only imagine to that sort of teaching, the, the angels at the tomb would have said, why are you seeking the living among the dead? If Jesus is not raised, you are still in your sins. If Jesus is not raised, you are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus has been raised. And so on the day of resurrection, the women at the tomb encountered God's salvation. A salvation probably greater than they dared to imagine. They met the declaration that Christ the Lord is the living one. He's the one who took our sin upon himself in the cross, and he buried our sin in the tomb of Joseph with his body. And when he raised again, he, he left it there. And he rose again to give us hope of eternal life through faith in his name. And so what did the women encounter at the tomb? They encountered salvation. Well, we've seen what they've expected and we've seen what they encountered. And third, we need to consider what the women remembered. What the women remembered. There's a pretty well-known saying Another one you've probably heard some Easter Sunday sometime. Uh, the saying goes that on Resurrection Sunday, God rolled away the stone, not so Jesus could get out of the tomb, but so the world could look in and see that he was gone. Nobody knows who said it first, right? Uh, we'll say it was Spurgeon. That sounds about right. Uh, but I, I don't want to lay that on Spurgeon because it sounds, it sounds so good. It sounds so powerful, so succinct. If you want to believe in the resurrection, just look at the empty tomb. Yet as catchy as it is, it, I think it overestimates the spiritual value of simply being there to see it. Consider the fact that in Luke's gospel, the, the tomb shows up as a puzzle. According to these women, it is not evidence that demands a verdict. It is an enigma that they cannot crack on their own. 
Luke says that they saw it. They went in and saw that his body was not there, and they were perplexed. They didn't say, oh, here it is. We've been waiting. They didn't understand what was happening. They were still so conditioned by the finality of death that in John's gospel, they believed the, the body thief hypothesis. They thought that someone had taken him and buried him who knows where. These women encountered the empty tomb as a historical fact and as a historical fact that they could not understand apart from divine revelation. That's why the angels were sent, not just to tell them, come and see, but to tell them, remember. That's the word the angels give to the women. Verse 6, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day raised. That's what they needed. Not just to see that the tomb was empty, but to understand what God was doing with this empty tomb. They needed to remember that Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, wasn't unpredicted. It wasn't unseen. They needed to remember that his sacrifice was planned before the foundations of the world were laid. They needed to remember, as he told them, that he's the one who has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. They needed to remember, just as he told them, that death would not have the final word. Not for Jesus and not for his people. What they needed at that empty tomb was to have the word of Christ serve as the lens through which they viewed that empty tomb. And we need the same. It is only as God's work is understood through God's word that we ever understand God's work at all. It is only when salvation is seen by faith that we ever really see it at all. So what they needed to remember was that the word of Christ can be trusted. And this is a theme that Luke is going to repeat. He doesn't have much space left, but he's going to repeat it two more times in this single chapter that's left in his gospel. Take a look at the Emmaus Road experience. Here comes Jesus walking alongside his disciples, and their eyes are kept from seeing who he is, but his eyes are open to see the sadness they're experiencing. That's what Luke tells us in, in these verses, that they're sad, that they're downcast. Jesus walks alongside them, and he listens to their perplexity. They're trying to make sense of all the things they've heard, all the events of that day. They're hearing reports of angels, Reports of resurrections, reports from the women, and they end their lament in verse 24. They say, some who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You hear the sadness there. It sounds almost good enough to believe. We want to believe it. It's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. It would be great if it's true, but we haven't seen him yet. And what does Jesus do in response? Does he open their eyes? Well, not yet. The first thing he does is, is to turn them back to the scriptures. Verse 25, he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The same thing happens later when 
they're in the room together and Jesus appears and actually this time he does open their eyes. He does reveal his, his resurrected body to them. He even says, touch my flesh and see that it's me. See my hands, see my feet. And in spite of all of that, verse 41 tells us they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. So what does Jesus do? Well, he eats some fish. But then, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the answer to unbelief. It is not to have our eyes opened to see all of the evidence and to make sense of it for ourselves. It is to have the mind of our spirit opened to understand the scriptures, to believe that God's word can be trusted. And you know how it goes. Because sometimes you can almost convince yourself, if I had been there, it'd be easier to believe. If I'd been with Thomas and I had put my hands into his side, if I had been with the women, if I had been able to look into the, the, the limestone-clad darkness and see nothing there, it would be easier for me to believe, but I just, I can't because I don't have the details, I don't have the arguments, I don't have the evidence. Dear Christian, what the disciples need to believe in the resurrection, we need to remember what these women remembered. We need to remember and believe that the word of Christ can be trusted. And when we do, we need to become witnesses, just like these women became witnesses. This is our fourth point. What the women related. What the women related. Now, verse 9 says that once they remembered Jesus' words, they returned from the tomb and they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest, and you know how it went for them. In verse 10, Luke names these women. I think that's an important thing. He's showing us uh, that these were women who ought to be trusted. The last time this group of names shows up is in chapter 8. He's reminding us these are women who have walked with the disciples through almost all of Jesus' ministry. They knew their character. They knew their speech. They knew their piety. They knew their devotion. These are women who ought to have been trusted, and yet we still find that when they go back and tell these things, the apostles refuse to believe. And I bet they weren't surprised that nobody believed them. They wouldn't have believed it themselves two hours ago. They knew they were, they were coming back, they were returning to tell their story to people who still expected what they had expected when they left with their arms full of spices. They knew that they were returning to tell something amazing to people who were so predisposed by logic, by personal experience to disbelieve in a bodily resurrection. They returned and told a group of grievers that death was dead and Jesus was alive. And I bet they weren't surprised when nobody believed them. But what could they do? They had seen. They had encountered. More than that, they had, they had remembered and believed. They had remembered that Jesus told them that in his death they should expect to encounter life. So what could they do except return and evangelize? What could they do except to relate God's salvation even in the face of unbelief? 
You know, Leon Morris points out that when Luke says they told these things, the word has the sense that they had to keep on telling it. That they had to keep on telling it with boldness, with, with conviction, that when others said, no, 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 that's not what happened, they had to say, yes, it is what happened, and I, I believe it. Let the world think them simple and naive and psychologically susceptible. That wasn't their concern. That's not what they had to worry about. They had come to believe that death was not the end and sin had been conquered at Calvary. They'd come to believe that the Lord Jesus was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And dear believer, if you've come to believe the same, what can you do but bear witness to what you've believed? you are likely to encounter skepticism. You are likely to be told that you are unscientific and you are naive and you are irrational and you are out of touch if you believe in a bodily resurrection. But what others think about what you believe is not your concern. Only bear witness. Only hold fast. Only speak of of what God's salvation has wrought, and even in the face of unbelief. Can we just say that it's okay if you don't have all the answers? There are answers out there, and if you, if you labor, you can go and you can find them, you can gird your apologetic loins, that's not a bad thing, there's a place for that, but can we just say it's okay not to have all the answers? Can we just say it's okay that you've you've never actually seen the empty tomb. That nobody here has seen the empty tomb, and there may be all sorts of sites. If you tour the Holy Land, this is the one that it was, and that's the one that it was, and this church is built on it, and nobody knows. And it's okay. You've never put your fingers in the place where the nails used to be. You know, Peter was there, though. Peter saw it all with his own eyes. And Peter wrote a letter to the Christians who were just like you, who had never seen it. Here's what he says in the beginning of his first letter. He said, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You don't have to have seen him. Because what it means to be a Christian is believing that Christ's word can be trusted. It means waiting for the salvation of your soul in him. It means speaking with conviction and boldness even in a world of unbelief. Christ is risen. It's not Easter Sunday. Let's try that again. Christ is risen. Amen. Let's go forth and believe it and bear witness to it. Let's pray. Gracious Lord our God, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that through faith in his name we may have life eternal, resurrection glory in your presence when it happens, we won't be paying attention to the glory of our resurrected bodies. We'll only be seeing you and worshiping you and basking in the light of your holiness and grace. Oh, Lord, help us to long for that, to set our hearts upon it. Or even as we read today in 
1 Thessalonians, that we would encourage one another with these words. There are those here that whether in the last year or the last 10 years have lost loved ones who are now dead in Christ, and yet we have a word that in him they shall live. O oh Lord, encourage our hearts. O oh Lord, give us hope and joy and gladness and joy inexpressible filled with glory. Help us to believe, O oh Lord, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to find life in his name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.